Okay, good evening everybody. I think we're probably mostly here, so we will make a start. Welcome back to Going Deeper Isaiah. Uh, you'll be glad to hear that today we're actually going to read a load of Isaiah. If you're here last week, you might have left thinking we didn't actually read much of Isaiah. That's because there was lots of really important introductory stuff to go through. But today is the day when we'll get some chance to uh, kind of wrestle with some of Isaiah ourselves. Also, well done if you made it through last week, because I think last week will be the most difficult session we do. An awful lot of stuff which is probably quite new to you to take in, and an awful lot to take in, basically. Uh, so hopefully, from here on in, I think actually each week will feel gradually easier, because each week we have less material um, to cover. Just a few uh, important practicalities before we dive in today. Hopefully you picked up today's notes on that table. Also, if you weren't here last week, you can get the folder which has last week's notes in as well. And please be aware that next week we're not meeting. So there's a one church prayer meeting on Wednesday evening, which will be here, so do come along to that. But because of that, we're not doing Going Deeper. The following week we are, and we'll be over in Bex Hill. So we'll be at the Pelham Bex Hill. The address is at the beginning of uh, session one's notes. And I think we will be upstairs in um, a room they call the ballroom. And I think we need to use the outside stairs. So there'll probably be someone there to tell you where to go. But basically there are stairs outside the building. You'll see them uh, head up there, we're in there. I'm afraid they're a bit steep. People tell me they're not good for access, so take it easy. If you need some help, call me or someone and um, we'll, we'll get you in. Uh, so we'll be in there next time. So don't come here in two weeks time. Uh, do make sure you go across to Bexhill. I think that's everything by way of practicality. So we can dive in with session two, which is a looking at Isaiah chapters 1 to 39. If you were here last week, you'll know we talked about the fact that Isaiah falls into three different sections, where he's actually talking into different historical periods. And this first section, 1 to 39, is uh, the longest uh, section in the book. And it's the time when Isaiah is speaking into the events that are happening in his day. And there's an awful lot of ground that it covers. We're going to see a lot of different types of messages in these chapters. But actually, behind it all, there's one key theme, which is the theme of faith. And really, all these chapters are asking the question, when actually threat comes, who are Judah, the people of God, going to trust? Are they going to trust in themselves? Are they going to trust in some foreign nations? Or actually, are they going to trust in their God? Are they going to trust in Yahweh? And what I've been amazed about with studying these chapters is how even though there's lots of them and there's quite a lot of variety in them, every single one is all feeding to this big message of who are you putting your trusting, your faith in to rescue you? And so the big message we're going to find all throughout these chapters is basically that it's only through trust in Yahweh, through their God, that they can be rescued from these threats that are coming to them. And then the second thing these chapters tell us is they tell us why it is that this Yahweh, God, can be trusted. They tell us that he is the king over all things, that he's actually going to raise up a new king to rule over God's people, who rule with a righteous, perfect, eternal reign, and that he's actually going to put to rights all the things that have gone wrong in the world because of human rebellion. And my intention when I was thinking about this course was that in these sessions we would look at some kind of key landmarks. We look at a few key chapter examples in these sections. But actually the more I've worked through this section, the more I've thought that getting the idea of the whole is probably more helpful 
then getting the detail of some of the individual bits. So there are some chapters we're going to look at in some more detail today. But actually, I hope that we'll kind of leave here with a sense of how this journey, this message of trusting Yahweh develops through these 39 chapters. And even if we don't get through everything, which chances are we won't, it's in your notes. If you want to, you can do that as well in your own time. The first thing we need to do, though, is to go back and think again about historical background. We said last week, reading the Bible, it takes about thinking about context. We've got to know what context we're reading in. And one of the key contexts we have to think about for the prophets is the historical context. Just means what's going on in the world at the time the writer's writing. Why is it that God's saying these things into this time? And so the first part of Isaiah here comes in the 8th century BC. It comes in a time when God's people in uh, uh, Israel are experiencing quite a lot of peace and prosperity but they're beginning to be threatened by Assyria. So Israel and Judah are the people of God down here and Assyria is this big nation over here who at this point are beginning to gain in power and are beginning to make their way around the uh, Near East here to invade different nations. And as you can see Israel and Judah are really small nations in the big picture of the Near East. And the way that things worked in this time of history was that one of these nations would kind of get big and powerful, would go and invade other nations, would take them off into exile, would bring new people in, and they create this kind of big empire. And so much of the history of Israel and Judah throughout the time of the prophets is this constant threat of other nations coming in, taking them away from the promise or the land that God had promised them, the place where God was living with them. And so Isaiah is written into that situation and like most of the writing prophets, he's explaining the kind of spiritual significance that's behind all this toing and throwing between nations. And just before Isaiah starts preaching, uh, Assyria, that big power, are actually at a fairly weak point. And so uh, Judah and Israel experienced a time of peace and prosperity. They were able to flourish and thrive. But we come into the story just at the time when Assyria is gaining strength and they're beginning to threaten these little countries. This guy called Tiglath-Pileser III becomes king of Assyria and he has big dreams about what he's going to do across the Near East. So that leaves Judah with this big decision. When nations like Assyria are coming in, they're trying to uh, invade them, they're threatening them, in what or in whom are they going to put their hope to retaining their freedom? What are they going to put their hope in to staying in that land that God had promised them? And how does everything that actually happens fit with the promises that God has given them? And there are two particular events that happen in the second half of the 8th century, this period Isaiah is talking into, that are really important for chapters 1 to 39. The first one is uh, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, and the Syria-Israel alliance. So in about 734, Israel, which is the northern nation of God's people, the northern kingdom, and Syria, who you can see literally just above them, join forces together. They think if we join together, we're going to be stronger to fight against Assyria. And they try to force King Ahaz of Judah to join them in an alliance. They're basically saying, trust in us and our collective power to save you. Don't trust in anything else. But Isaiah brings the word of God to Ahaz and says, no, no, don't trust in other nations. Don't trust in your own strengths. You've got to trust in your God. Only God can rescue you from this threat. But Ahaz doesn't trust in God. Rather than making an alliance with Israel and Assyria, he makes an alliance with Assyria, the big power. 
And one commentator sums this up brilliantly. He says this was basically the equivalent to one mouse asking a cat for help against another mouse. The little one goes to the big one that's threatening them all to get some help against another one of the little ones. And as his commentator says, only the cat could be the winner in such an arrangement. And that's exactly what happens. The cat wins. Ahaz made an agreement with the Assyrians. He didn't trust in God as God had said. And so actually the Assyrians come and they make uh, Judah their vassal, which basically means they are now ruling over them. The people of Judah had to pay lots of money to the Assyrians and they've effectively become part of the Assyrian empire. So the um, Judah, the, the Judahite king was still on the throne, but basically they're just a puppet ruler now. They're under the hand and under the control of Assyria. And then as this decade passed under the next uh, uh, Assyrian rulers, Shalmaneser and Sargon, Syria and Israel, those two northern nations, get invaded and get destroyed. But Judah down here is still kind of hanging on. And then the second key event we're going to meet in Isaiah happens under the next king, the son of Ahaz, a guy called Hezekiah. Hezekiah, again, is kind of uh, having to decide, are we going to be pro-Assyrian or are we going to be anti-Assyrian? And when they start to uh, kind of threaten to attack, he has to decide what to do. And this time, Egypt, who are down here in the south, what's that, west, uh, offer their help. And so he starts thinking, maybe if I link up with Egypt, I can uh, defend ourselves against Assyria. But again, the word of God comes to him. He says, no, no, don't trust in another nation. Don't trust in your own strength. This is only going to work if you're trusting in me, if you're trusting in God. And actually, as we'll see at the very end of Isaiah 1 to 39, at the kind of final hour, Hezekiah realises he needs to trust in Yahweh. He cries out to him. And there's an amazing, miraculous story of God bringing deliverance. And so all the cities and towns around Jerusalem in Judah do get taken over by the Assyrians. But actually Jerusalem, right there, the capital and the centre, preserves its independence pretty much for another uh, over 100 years, 120 years, because Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh to deliver the city rather than trusting everything else. We basically get to the end of Isaiah 139 and finally the king has learnt the lesson that all these chapters have been trying to teach. Let me um, kind of trace for you the flow. In a sense, this is a, a small scale map of these chapters before we then look at it in some more detail through the evening. We said last week that the prophets are anthologies, they're collections of these oracles, these standalone sayings put together. And sometimes they can be completely random orders, random collections. But actually, as I've said, all of this section is communicating this one message about trust. It starts with Isaiah 1 to 5, which is a prologue. It's an introduction, quite possibly put together later during Isaiah's ministry to introduce everything else that comes. And it really gives us a summary of the big problem that the whole book is about. You see, the problem is that God's people, Israel, have failed to live out the commission that was given to them. When God called Abraham their forefather, he was told that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the nation of Israel had been told that they were meant to be a light to the nations. They're meant to kind of show the world what God is like and invite them to follow him. But actually the prologue tells us they've completely failed to do that. Actually they've forsaken their God. They've not borne the fruit that he wanted. And yet these chapters also tell us that there's going to be a day when people from every nation are going to come and are going to join God's people, are going to worship Yahweh, acknowledge him as the only king. 
And so this raises the whole question, how can it be that Israel has totally failed in the task that God has given them, that they're still living in rebellion against God, and yet one day all the nations will come and Israel will lead them in worshipping God? And that's what the rest of the book answers for us. And we get the answer in miniature in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the really famous story of Isaiah's call where he has this vision of the holy God and then he's given a um, commission. And what we see happen to Isaiah is what needs to happen to the nation. He sees the holy God, he realises his own failings, his own uh, uncleanness and then it's God who offers him atonement, who makes up for his failings. It's God who makes he who is unclean, takes him and makes him clean. And we see that Isaiah needs to recognise that he's unclean and that it's only God who can make him clean. He goes through the journey that Israel needs to realise to be able to fulfil the call that God has put on them. So at the end of Isaiah 6, we're left with the question, we know what needs to happen, but how can this happen for the whole of Israel rather than just for Isaiah? And that's what chapters 7 to 39 begin to do and what the rest of the book as a whole will tell us. Chapters 7 to 12 are all about trusting in Yahweh and not in Assyria. This is what I've just talked about, about King Ahaz, when Israel and Syria are threatening to invade Judah. And Ahaz, rather than trusting in God, as Isaiah calls him to do, trusts in Assyria. And God says, actually, because of that, it's all going to go wrong. Assyria are going to invade them, are going to take them over. And yet even here we have promises that God is going to raise up a perfect ruler anointed by the Holy Spirit, a new king who will rule over them, who will kind of um, deal with all these things that have gone wrong. Even though Ahaz has failed to live the way that God's called him to, God's declaring that he is still able and he will still make his people into what he's called them to be. God is able to do what he says. And now Isaiah 13 to 27 talk about the nations because you kind of think at this stage God's saying not to trust in these big powers but the fact is a lot of them are doing quite well and the fact is that on paper it looks like joining up with Assyria or joining up with Egypt would be a really good idea they could really help and you can kind of hear the people saying well why shouldn't we do that and so in Isaiah um, 13 to 27 Isaiah brings a load of oracles against the nations. He explains that actually all these nations who don't follow Yahweh are going to be judged for failing to live his way. They might look strong and stable and a good helpmate at the moment, but the reality is actually the time's going to come when God's going to judge them. None of them actually is a good partner for an alliance. And that kind of then morphs into, in chapters um, 24 to 27, an even wider vision. We're having looked at all these individual countries, these individual nations, Isaiah says actually there'll be a day as well when God will judge the whole earth, when actually there'll be huge destruction, huge desolation. But in the midst of all of that, God again will establish his kingdom. God will deal with this big problem. He'll get rid of sin. He'll uh, execute his judgment, but then also he'll show his mercy in raising up um, a, a, a new kingdom where death is defeated, where all the things of brokenness that have overshadowed the world get taken away. Again, Isaiah is telling us that, yes, God is able to do what he says because this is what he's going to do further down the timeline. With Isaiah 28, we take a step down the timeline and we reach the time of Hezekiah that next king. And remember I said here the issue is whether when the Assyrians are threatening to invade Judah, whether they're going to trust in God or whether they're going to trust in Egypt. 
And so God warns the people, don't trust in Egypt. It's a pointless thing to trust in Egypt. You've got to trust in God. And he promises that one day he's going to raise up a new king, a king who will reign in righteousness. He promises that one day his spirit, God's spirit, is going to be poured out, which will cause this reign of righteousness to happen. It will cause the people who've been unfruitful, they've not done what God wants, actually to be fruitful. It's a solution to this big problem that happens. And then we get the story of Hezekiah and his going back and throw whether or not he's going to trust in Egypt. And that story of at the very last minute, he's finally learned this lesson. He realises that Egypt can't help him. None of the other nations can help him. And when uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, is threatening to come and invade Jerusalem, he cries out to God. And in that moment, God delivers them. There's that miraculous thing where God comes, gives them a victory that seems utterly impossible because he'd realised his only hope of rescue, his only hope of salvation was to trust in God. And the last chapters of this section actually form a transition. Hezekiah, this king, becomes ill and God actually tells him he's going to die. But again, Hezekiah cries out to him and God adds 15 years to his life. And as Hezekiah is getting better, a bunch of guys from Babylon, which is, or Babylonia, which is down there, in uh, the south east come and they're on the up at this point okay so they're getting more power and they come and long story short basically it turns out that when they are coming looking for some help to get rid of the Assyrians Hezekiah seems to have lost the lesson he learned before and he begins to make an alliance with them he stops trusting God and actually he starts trusting them and what Isaiah says is because of a result of that Actually, there's going to come a time when Hezekiah's sons and the people of that day will be taken into exile, not actually by the Assyrians in the north, but by the Babylonians in the south. He's warning them what's going to happen about 120 years later, which, of course, raises the question for us. God said all this stuff about the new king and the eternal kingdom and people coming from all the nations to worship God. And he's just rescued Jerusalem. But now he's saying that the Babylonians are going to destroy it all and take all the people away. And we think, well, what about God's promises? And that's why Isaiah can't stop writing there. That's why from chapters 40 onwards, he's talking to a time which is 160 or 70 years later. But he's got to talk about it because otherwise the people are going to think, actually, it turns out God couldn't do what he said. God can't fulfill his word. And so you see how we trace this kind of thing. Isaiah is trying to teach us through these chapters. You've got to trust in Yahweh alone for salvation. And Hezekiah becomes this wonderful example of what happens when that happens. But then also we get this threat that comes because he can't succeed in doing it. And that's why next week we'll find he talks into the end of that Babylonian exile. So let's look at the prologue in more detail. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to, in your groups, wrestle with some sections of this together. This is a really significant part of the book. It sets the scene really for everything. It helps us get our head around what Isaiah is uh, saying, what he's going to be talking about. It's not really sure whether these oracles came to Isaiah before the call that we read in Isaiah 6, or if actually they've been placed before to kind of set some context. And in a sense, it doesn't matter, but where they're placed now means they're the introduction to the book that we should be listening to. And they make several key points in a seemingly uh, kind of random order. Sometimes they're presented as generic truths. Sometimes they're very much rooted to specific historical circumstances, to what hap is happening in Judah. And the message of this prologue fits with the generic kind of three-part prophetic message we talked about last week. He tells us that Judah has sinned 
and is currently sinning against God. The people of God aren't actually living the way that he has called them to live. And he tells them that because of that, God is going to pass his judgment upon them. God is going to pour condemnation upon them, which happens through these foreign nations coming and invading them. But then the third point is that God is not going to give up on his promise, or his promises to his people, and he is going to bring those promises to reality. So at the same time as these um, accusations about uh, uh, Judah's failures, and at the same time as these promises that actually they're going to receive the judgment or condemnation from, of God because of it, there are these wonderful promises of what God is going to do, of how God is going to work everything out. And we can actually kind of find a very broad speaking um, structure where he alternates between talking about what's happening now in Judah and the thing that's going to bring their judgment and then the future that God is going to work for them. So he starts by talking about Judah's sin, their imminent judgment. He talks about all the religious and social sins in Judah. But then he talks about the fact that one day the mountain of the Lord, the place where God lives, will be the highest mountain of all. That means the one which is above and supreme over all. And all the nations will come there and worship it, worship him. And then he goes back to talking about Judah's sin and judgment. He talks about the day of the Lord that will come when everyone who's exalted themselves and lifted themselves up high actually will be brought low and will be humbled. But then he's back to the future. He says there's a day when this branch of the Lord, this figure is going to come. There'll be a holy remnant, people living God's way with God living with them. But then he goes back again to Judah's sin and in judgment. There's this song of the Lord's vineyard, this vineyard that's meant to produce all this fruit, but actually just produces wild grapes, doesn't do what it's meant to do. So I'm going to give you some time now in your groups to look at one of these passages which come from this prologue and there are two things I particularly want you to be kind of asking and wrestling together to understand. The first one is what was the original meaning? So what did Isaiah and the Holy Spirit want to communicate to the original hearers of these words? And the second one is to ask what are the theological principles, the general truths about God and about how we relate to him that we can apply today? There are two kind of generic questions you're asking whatever passage you're looking at, but then I've also given you some questions per passage which will help guide you through a bit as well. Okay, we'll quickly kind of feed out what we found. We won't have time for you to put all the questions, but be good just to give the other groups a bit of an idea. So hopefully together we're getting a flavour for how this prologue works. So first one was uh, Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 to 20, which I think was you guys down here. So I want to quickly tell us a little bit of what your passage said, just give us a general idea about it, and then we'll explore it a bit more. Are we, are we reading from the passage? And then we'll just Probably won't, just at the time. So you just give a summary of the kind of things it's okay. talking about. Excellent. Definitely, definitely. And, and what's the overall message? What's he talking about? What parts of life? Uh, God is talking about their religious life. They're, they're doing sort of pagan festivals and expecting sacrifice to cover over it. Really good, yeah, yeah. God is sort of saying change or else. He's saying their, their sins are as red as scarlet and he wants them to be white as snow. And, uh, yeah, I think that covers... That's brilliant. It's a brilliant summary. You've said two really important things there. You said, I think, a good phrase, he says change or else which is exactly what a judgment oracle is saying. It's saying you're doing all this stuff that's completely wrong. If you don't change, judgment is going to come. And you're right, that's spot on with what he's talking about here. And you said, didn't you, this is particularly, he's talking here about the religious life. So chapter one, he talks about, um, I'm going to get the wrong order, 
but he talks about the social life, the leadership, and he talks about the religious life. And here it's, yeah, they're doing all this awful stuff, and they just think if they're going to make a sacrifice, it's absolutely fine. But actually God's saying it's completely meaningless without that heart behind it. And then... Absolutely. So all, you can look at it, can't you? Think it's all the right stuff, but actually they're doing it totally at the wrong heart, aren't they? With totally the wrong, the wrong lifestyle. And then you're right, the second bit. What was the last bit about the um, letting us reason together? Oh, yeah, he says that. Can you ask the question a bit differently? Yeah, so what's the, the last verses, Dave, from 18 onwards, when he talks about sins are scarlet and things yeah. being white as snow? What's he saying is going to happen there? He's basically saying if you change, then I'll bless you and, and all oh, my grace will be on, on you. But if you don't change, then you'll fall by the sword. So he's making promises about Fantastic. what's going to happen. Spot on. He's promising grace, but actually they have to trust in God for that grace. And so actually it's a judgment oracle, isn't it? Basically with a salvation oracle stuck on the bottom. And I feel more, I like this, describes these verses as an out-of-court settlement. It's about, like God is saying, here's this utter mess you've got yourself into. Here's all this stuff you deserve but actually I'm willing to give you an out-of-court settlement if you will trust in me and trust in the salvation that I'm going to offer you. Fantastic. Thank you, group. Great job there. Uh, Isaiah 2, 2 to 4, I think, is you guys back here. What's your passage? Uh, what type of passage is it? What's it talking about? Okay, it's a, it's a quite famous short passage about in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised above the hills. And people will treat their swords and plowshares and their spears and pruning hooks. Excellent. What do you think these verses, what type of oracle is this? Did you get that? That's helpful to know. Salvation. Yeah, yeah. So he's talking about the salvation that he is going to work. And uh, what, what are these referring to? When is this talking about, do you think? We had some interesting debate about I bet you did. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's good. We were kind of like, does that mean it can't be in a return, like, after the return of Jesus? But we didn't really... Really good. I, yeah. We just discussed that and felt confused. But then it's not the case so much at the moment that swords are being put into plowshare, you know, that you're getting rid of weapons and making it items of peace. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of thought that for the people of that time, they'd probably look at fairly practically. So mm. I think that's a really good point, Tom. Yeah, I think often, often, yeah, yeah, often the salvation oracles they're using exactly that, using language of the day, the things people cared about to talk about future spiritual realities, which therefore in precise detail might not quite match, but the general message it's kind of communicate is, is exactly right. But you're spot on of identifying one of the big problems of the prophets there. When the prophets talk about the future, are they talking about what we call the church age, so now between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return? Are they talking about the new creation? Often, we don't really know, often it's a mixture of the two. There is this kind of mixing, because there's not much indication until we get to post-Jesus that there'll even be that gap. And so it is quite hard to know. So we're, you know, we're in the now, not yet. We're experiencing some of those blessings now. Um, but I think also, particularly because those last verses about peace, we're not experiencing all of it yet. But you see how Isaiah's gone from this message of judgment then to this looking down, actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to restore everything. And then he goes back to judgment, which I think is the next group. Is that you guys at the back? Chapter 2, verses 5 to 21. 
Um, I've given the first answer already, judgment we've got here. What, um, what is your passage talking about? What are the kind of sins that are talked about? Repetitions really important for your passage? What did you find? Uh, two things, relying on silver and gold mm. and material things. Yeah. Excellent. Which, of course, is the antithesis of the message of Isaiah 139. The message is trusting God, but they're trusting in people. They're trusting in powers. Did you notice there's uh, kind of a couple of words which repeat, or a, a motif that repeats a lot of the way through? That does appear a few times. Yeah, yeah, well, exaltation. So there's this idea of exaltation and humbling. There's the idea that the people have exalted themselves wrongly and therefore God's punishment upon them is that they're going to be humbled. And one of the key um, emphases in this passage is the idea that God's judgment is a humbling of the arrogance, basically, of humanity. It's a day, uh, verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Against the cedars of Lebanon, which are tall trees, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, tall trees against all the lofty mountains all the uplifted hills against every high tower every fortified wall all the ships of Tarshish against all the beautiful craft the haughtiness the arrogance of man shall be humbled the lofty pride shall be brought low the Lord alone will be exalted in that day there's a sense that man has put himself where God should be as so a God's response is he humbles and God alone will be the one who's exalted in that end day and we're going to see in a few moments that's a key theme um, as we go through Isaiah did you pick out any theological principles we can apply today from that passage? Rely on God and not Fantastic. Not a trick question. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And just the idea, you know, I mean, in fact, this Sunday, Paul Edward, we were preaching a passage, talks about humbling yourself under the hand of God and he will exalt you at the right time. It's that thing of we live in humility, the right response to God as a created human is to live in humility to him, to have him as the only one who is high and exalted. Fantastic, thank you. And the last passage, 5, 1 to 7, I think you laid this down here, did. What was the uh, type of oracle? What's the kind of message being communicated? Well, we thought it was a disputation. Oh. Yeah, it could be both in a sense. You're right, it has elements of disputation because he's talking to the people uh, and it's also pronouncing judgment, isn't it? Do you want to just tell us what's the kind of um, the form of this? What's the imagery and stuff he's using? It talks about a gardener who plants a vineyard in very fertile Mm. land, um, but when the plants grow, they produce bad fruit. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, so we sort of we sort of thought it was a clear message to the people of the day mm-hmm. that um, although everything was in place, they actually had not borne mm-hmm. good fruit. Mm-hmm. And we thought the theological principle that we can apply today is that. When Jesus died on the cross, he did everything. He didn't mm. need to do any more. Brilliant, yeah. He did exactly. He, the job is finished as far as he's concerned. And it's only our free will that causes us to bear bad fruit. Mm. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. 
So he's talking about the failing of Israel, isn't he? Israel is the vine. As he said, this vine, vines are meant to produce lovely fruit to make wine from, and actually this has just produced bad fruit, if any fruit at all. It's the idea of that failure of the, um, or the people to live out that vision that God does. And therefore he says what he's going to do from there. He's going to bring um, judgment to them. And you're exactly right. Yeah, it applies nicely to us. The vineyard obviously is a big biblical theme. Often in the Old Testament, God's people are called the vineyard. Coming to the New Testament, Jesus talked about himself as the vine. His father is the vine dresser. That's Jesus saying, I'm the true Israel. I'm the vine who really produces the fruit. You've got to get connected to me to be people who bear fruit. So for us, the theological principle, you're right, is that Jesus has done what's necessary for us to bear fruit. And with here even, we can think, okay, should we read it through the lens of the New Testament? We know actually Jesus is divine. And that Jesus tells us it's by keeping connected to him that we don't fall into this situation of not bearing the right fruit, but actually we can live out, we can bear the fruit that God wants us to bear. Doesn't it also um, uh, suggest that um That's one of the, in a sense, the reminders of the judgment oracles to us. We read the judgment oracles through that lens of Christ, don't we? Which means we know that actually we're in Christ, there's no condemnation for us. We're never going to experience the condemnation. But it doesn't mean that actually God doesn't discipline us to help us and change us. And what the prophets do, especially, I mean, some of the passages you just read there, that's a wonderful example, actually. Let me sing this song of my beloved vineyard. And actually, it's completely failed. It's produced wild grapes. It hasn't produced what it's meant to. What the prophets show us is that sin isn't just a legal issue, though it is, but the legal issue is dealt by Christ. Sin is also forgotten emotionally. Actually, when he uses that language of adultery or the vineyard that's failed to live up to all this work the vine dresser has put into it, we realise that our sin still actually causes God huge emotional pain, basically. And it does affect our relationship. There is discipline, which is meant to be constructive to help us move to live God's way. It's a great, great point, Paul. Let's move to Isaiah 6 now. The call of Isaiah, which is hugely important in the book, really, I think, shaped Isaiah's view, which then in turn shapes his message, what he communicates, how he communicates it. And we see in this chapter both a vision of God, Isaiah sees God, and then we see the commission, the, um, uh, the role, basically, that Isaiah is given us. And having read Isaiah 1 to 5, we're left with two questions which Isaiah 6 gives us answers to. The first is, how can this sin for Israel, this, um, these people who are making sacrifices but are also sinning against God, these people who've failed to bear the kind of fruit that God wants, how can they become that nation to whom all people come to worship Yahweh on that mountain that's lifted up? How can they become, as Isaiah 4 says, a holy people living in their land with God? And it's what we see happening in Isaiah 6, which is the answer in miniature to that, um, that question, those questions. So it starts with this vision, which had a huge impact on Isaiah. Isaiah sees one day God lifted up as king. It happens when an earthly king Uzziah dies. And in that year that Uzziah dies, Isaiah sees the king who reigns over all. 
Notice things like he's called Lord. And if you notice, Lord there is not all in capitals. And you know, when you read your English Old Testament, if Lord is all in capitals, it means it's the divine name, the name Yahweh, which out of reverence isn't printed. But here he doesn't use that word. Here he uses the word for a sovereign, someone who rules over everything. He's saying, I saw the sovereign. And this sovereign is seated on a throne, which obviously is where the king sits. He's seated in a palace. The Hebrew word heikal, which means temple, also means palace, because it's the place where a sovereign um, lives and dwells. All these things, this description of God, is pointing to the fact that he is the king. He's the one who rules. And as the one who rules, he's also the one who judges. And God, when he sees him, is seated on his throne and his throne is high and lifted up, which hopefully now is ringing some bells from Isaiah 3. Because Isaiah has already pronounced judgment on these people who are proud and who are lofty, these people who've lifted themselves up. And God says that he's got a day when all those things will be brought low, when the Lord alone will be exalted. Here we see the Lord's exalted, the only one who deserves to be high and lifted up, seated on his throne. And this will be a motif that will come throughout the book, this idea that human sin is about arrogance of exalting ourselves when actually it's the creator who should be exalted and that God's punishment of us is to humble us. And so the right response of the created to the creator is to live in humility and to live in trust. And Isaiah, he talks about seeing God, but actually what he talks to us about, what he tells us about, are the things that happen around us. Even though he says he's kind of seeing Yahweh, actually he's beyond description. He can only talk to us about the things that are happening around him. And around the throne where God is seated high and lifted up are the seraphim. These are angelic beings, and even though they're perfect uh, angelic beings, unstained by sin, they're having to shield their face and their feet and to keep themselves because of the utter holiness of God. And their name, seraphim, means burning ones. And often in the Bible, burning is associated with holiness and is associated with judgment. The same word is used elsewhere in Isaiah and um, in the Pentateuch, where it's used for what seem to be kind of fiery serpent-like figures who are agents of uh, death and destruction, agents of God's judgment. And elsewhere in the Bible, when we see God, a vision of God on his throne, he's surrounded by the cherubim, angelic figures, but here, Isaiah sees, not the cherubim, he sees the seraphim, these burning ones. There's this idea that the king is sat on his throne. From the throne, a king pronounces judgment. And actually, his fiery burning agents of judgment are around this throne, ready to execute his judgment. And the seraphim are worshipping. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They repeat it three times, which in Hebrew is the way you emphasise something. So you don't say it was very holy, you say it was holy, holy. And holy, holy, holy is the only threefold repetition of that word in the Bible. They're saying this God is the most utterly, totally, perfectly holy being there ever is and there ever could be. And holiness is something, we don't misunderstand it, but holiness is hard to understand. To describe something as holy basically means it's divine. It's an adjective, a describing word, which means something is divine. What the content of that meaning is, is then dictated by who the God you're talking about is. Which is why in the Old Testament, you read about holy women who were cult prostitutes of Asherah, a different God. They weren't holy as in they were set apart for Yahweh. They were holy as in they were linked to the divine. So to say that God here is holy, to ask what that means, we have to ask what are the distinctives of this holy, this divine being? And for the God of the Old Testament, for Yahweh, his distinctives are that he is the uncreated creator. 
He is the one who created everything else. That means that he is by definition separate and different from everything else because all else is created, but he is the uncreated one. And the other kind of key distinctive about Yahweh's character is his moral character. If you read stories from other cultures in the ancient world, the gods they made up stories about are not pleasant. They're not moral creatures. They give laws to the people, but they don't follow the laws themselves. Yahweh gives the law and he says, be holy because I, your God, am holy. He gives the law which is meant to reflect who he is. Actually, moral perfection is part of who God is. So to declare that the God of the Bible is holy is to say that he's distinct from all else as the uncreated creator and that he is utterly perfect in all uh, moral qualities, in all ways. And this holiness of God becomes central to the theology of Isaiah. This is one of the ways this experience hugely impacts on the whole rest of the book. One of the key titles that Isaiah uses for God is the Holy One of Israel. And in the whole rest of the Old Testament, that's only used six times. But in the chapters of Isaiah, it's used 25 times. The adjective holy is applied to God 26 times in the rest of the Bible, but 33 times in Isaiah alone. This vision makes him realise that the core attribute of Yahweh is that he is holy. And so the whole of Isaiah's message stems from the recognition of God's holiness, but then the question of how on earth can a sinful and unclean and unholy humanity possibly relate to a holy God. And that's what then happens because Isaiah realises when he sees the holy God, even he is utterly unholy. Even he is unclean. He says, woe is me for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's saying all these problems he describes in chapter one to five, actually he's part of the problem too. Even if he seemed like a fairly good guy bringing God's messages, even he, when he beholds the holy God, realises he's unclean, he is un, um, unholy. He expects judgment and destruction. Woe is me, I'm undone, he says. He thinks it's all going to be over. But God acts in grace and in mercy. One of the seraphim flies down and brings to him a burning coal. Remember we said that burning represents holiness in the Bible. The coal comes from the altar, the place of sacrifice and the systems that God had given them to deal with sin. And he comes and he brings and he touches Isaiah's lips with it. And the seraph says that as a result of this, Isaiah's guilt has been taken away. His sin is atoned for. That means it's made up for. The price has been paid. In the face of impending judgment, Isaiah is saved by sheer grace through the action of God. And the only thing he did was to recognise his hopeless and helpless position. Isaiah's experience is a picture in miniature of what this nation Israel, who've totally failed in the commission that God has given them need. They, as a sinful, unholy, unclean people, to become what God wants them to be, for all those promises to come to reality, they need that same thing. They need a transformative encounter with the Holy One of Israel. They need the atonement that only he can offer. And they can only receive this when they recognise their own helplessness, their own hopelessness, hopelessness, and they trust in God to save them. And the second half of the chapter, which we often probably ignore, we like the vision, we miss the next part, is the commission. It's when God tells Isaiah to do something. Isaiah willingly offers himself when God says, who will go for us? And the commission giving actually is really surprising. He doesn't say anything about the content of the message that Isaiah is going to communicate. He actually only talks about the outcome of the message. 
He says that the people are going to hear and the people are going to see, but they're not going to understand. And actually, he says that as Isaiah brings God's word, he's actually only going to make the problem greater. People are going to be less and less able to understand the more actually that Isaiah says to them. And so Isaiah cries out, well, how long, O Lord? He's requesting mercy. He's saying, when will this end? When will you come and rescue your people? But God's response is this is going to continue until utter, utter destruction has come. That the land is going to be destroyed. The people are going to be taken away. There's going to be exile at the hands of one of these foreign nations. And he says the destruction will be thorough. It will be as if there was a great forest which is being savaged by fire. And all that remains is a little stump in one corner. This commission might well make us feel quite uncomfortable. We kind of think it means that Isaiah's role was not just to announce the judgment of God or to warn people judgments coming as they should change. Actually, in bringing his message, Isaiah was executing, was implementing the judgment of God. It seems to suggest that God's mind was kind of already made up, basically. This was going to happen, whatever. You might find that a bit unpalatable, but I think there are two very important considerations to bear in mind. The first thing is that this judgment is coming upon God's people after centuries and centuries and generations and generations of unfaithfulness to God. You just read through one kings, two kings, time and time again, each king, no one seems to learn from the one before them. All of them worship other gods, trust other nations. They don't put their faith in Yahweh. They don't live his way. The second thing that even though there's this warning of utter certain judgment, there's also still a promise of hope. The very last phrase in this commission given to um, Isaiah picks up on the idea of that stump that's left in the forest. It says the holy seed is its stump. Now seeds grow into something and the seed is designated as holy. It's been linked to that holy, holy, holy one. Just as in Isaiah 4, there was a remnant, a leftover of people who were made holy. God's saying that even though he's going to bring severe destruction, even though the nation is going to be burned down as if there's just one tiny little stump left in the corner of a forest, from that stump, from that remnant, he will raise up something new. He's not actually going to completely destroy. He's not going to end them. He's going to raise something new. Tony? Same as yeah, really good. So we'll come back to a bit later. Um, he's linking here, absolutely. We've got, had the branch in Isaiah 4. We've got the stump in, um, well, this is Isaiah 6. And yeah, the branch that will come from the root of Jesse is this messianic figure, this king figure um, in chapter 11. And so it becomes a minor theme, spot on in Isaiah, this idea of kind of the tree um, uh, coming and bringing new life. And as I said, as we go through Isaiah, if you read through Isaiah yourself, you'll see the impact of this all throughout. That's right. Are you saying that um, verses 9 onwards, there was no possibility that the people were going to repent? Is, is it not just offering, if they really did think about it, repent, then they could still be saved? In a, sense, in a sense, it's hard for us to know. If the people really had repented and changed, I think God, yes, would have acted differently. As we said last week, God doesn't change his mind, but God always acts in line or treats people fairly based on what they're doing. So the people change what they're doing, then God will change, well, God will treat them differently because they've changed. But it seems what Isaiah is saying here is actually the people in a sense don't have a chance to change. They're not going to hear, they're not going to understand. Their hearts are being hardened, as the Bible would talk about it, um, to such an extent that they can't. Seems to be the message. Yeah, Mike. I think that passage is the most quoted in the New Testament. Yeah. It's quoted by Jesus himself. Spot on. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's the most quoted, but certainly it's used a lot in the New Testament. I think Paul uses it probably in Romans 9 to 11. Jesus quotes it, certainly all the synoptic gospels. And when we get to the last session and look at Isaiah in the New Testament, we'll probably talk about it. Jesus actually applies it to his parables. Um, it's quite confusing. I don't want to say too much till I've studied it again. So I don't want to say something I'll regret. But he applies it to the confusing nature, the surprising nature, actually, of how parables work. Stuff which is quite hard for us, quite hard for us to swallow, in a sense. But what is interesting is that Isaiah doesn't seem to find this hard to swallow. Isaiah doesn't dare respond or question, you know, God, how can you do that? He wants him to have mercy, but he doesn't say, God, you can't do that. And I think there's something about Isaiah has had such a perception of the holiness of God. I think it is that it's when we see the holiness of God that actually you read all the things that happen in the Bible. God kills thousands of people in the Bible. We'll hear it later. He kills 185,000 people in one night. But God's the holy, holy, holy one. We, as the unholy created things, cannot question actually the actions of the Creator. Very difficult. But I think the holiness of God is one of the things that the church worldwide has kind of lost a hold of. And people like the Puritans really got it and it hugely shaped their view of God, I think. What about in Sodom, when, when, when God said he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the prophet spoke to him and said, what if there's sort of 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, will you save them? That's right, a lot kind of reasons, reasons yeah. with God. God does change his mind and he saves, saves Lot and his family, doesn't he? he sa- yeah, he saves Lot. I mean, God is, God is, this is the wonderful thing, God is utterly holy and yet crazily God is also merciful. <laughs> crazily God is also merciful. But then, as we'll find in the next bunch of chapters with the servant figure he's also just somehow God finds ways to fit justice and mercy and utter holiness to hold them all together Jesus to remain who he is absolutely yeah yeah and he links mercy I think to God's mercy so exactly it reflects who he is well it's not it's sort of charitable works and showing showing kind of undeserved favour I guess in your mercy Peter do you have a is it also true that God knows in advance whether the people are going to repent or not? <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> <don't believe> it. <laughs> it is true. It's, defi- I can say it's definitely true that God knows in advance. The bigger question is, has God determined in advance whether or not it will happen? Um, that's, the, that's the bigger difficulty. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, Isaiah is one of the strongest places in the Bible to make a case for God's utter sovereignty and control and um, ordination of all things. The lesson for today is if today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Someone should write that down. (laughs) Very good. Absolutely. Let's move on. I think... I want to get to their activities. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give an overview of the next two main chapters so we won't talk about too much of Isaiah 24, 26 because I want you to be able to look at some passages about the Messiah in 1 to 39. Let's just look at 7 to 12 in a bit more uh, detail. I've said already these chapters are where the message is trust in God, trust in Yahweh, not in um, Assyria. This is this point where Israel and Assyria, those two nations at the top, are threatening Judah. And Ahaz is thinking, maybe I should join with them to fight against Assyria. Maybe actually Assyria, if I make them my friend, they'll look after me. Things will be all right. 
But Isaiah comes and he says, no, no, you've got to trust in God. This is where we get the prophecy about the child Emmanuel who's going to come. And the use of these chapters in the New Testament is hugely complex. So in the last session, one of the things we will do is we'll look at these chapters together. We'll look at how do they apply to Jesus? How does that all work out? But he promises these signs that Ahaz, that these things are going to happen. But still, Ahaz fails to trust God. He does make this agreement with the Assyrians and God pronounces judgment and says ultimately that's going to lead to the Assyrians invading Judah which will be an expression of his judgment upon them but God also promises again talks about a child who's going to come there's all this darkness he says but actually he's going to bring light into this darkness he speaks about this child through whom this light will come and he promises that the arrogance of Assyria will be judged. He says, don't think that Assyria are going to get away with this. Don't think I'm not treating everyone fairly. That just as your arrogance, your loftiness is being brought down, he says, I'm going to do the same to Assyria. But he also promises Judah a new ruler from the line of David, which is the kingly line who'd been promised that they would have an eternal kingdom. He promises they will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. They'll bring lasting peace. They'll gather the people of God from all the nations to which they've been scattered and will institute this eternal kingdom, a perfect kingdom. And on the back of that, there's then this great kind of hymn of praise at the end of chapter 12 or in chapter 12. And often sections in Isaiah are bookended. They're ended with songs of worship which when you read the truth is kind of understandable. It's this sense that Isaiah overflows when he sees what God is promising. <laughs> he overflows in worship. And then chapters 13 to 27 are dealing with this whole thing of what about the nations? Why shouldn't we, trother, why shouldn't we trust in the nations? What's so bad about Egypt who look quite strong? What's so bad about Assyria who might like us if we try to be friendly with them? They might help us. And so he gives this whole series of judgments on Assyria and Babylon and Moab and all sorts of people. There's also in there an oracle against Jerusalem. It shows this, um, uh, the, uh, the kind of equality with which God treats people, that God is just. He doesn't have favourites who he treats unfairly. Actually, God is just and fair in the way that he acts. And then in chapters 24 to 27, which I've given you more detailed notes on, because there are really good, exciting chapters, really significant in Isaiah Significant actually to the Bible as well. Revelation uh, kind of alludes to them a lot, takes hold of what they're saying. When he talks about this desolation that's going to come to the earth, but that the mountain of the Lord will be, as chapter 2 said, the highest place. And that this covering, he talks about this covering, which is kind of uh, loomed large over all of humanity throughout all of history, which seems to be talking about all the devastating effects of sin, but especially talking about death. And he says that on that mountain, death will be swallowed up. He will totally destroy it. And God himself will come. God will wipe away every tear. God will remove the reproach of his people. And the people of God will declare, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. Notice the words of the people at that final time is, we waited for God and he saved us. It's not we tried really hard and he saved us. It's not we did half of it and God did half of that. We just waited for God. We trusted in God and he saved us. And if you read those chapters at home on your own, you'll see there's just such this strong theme of God is gonna do all this and all we have to do is trust. All we have to do is say, I'm not trusting in myself or anything like that. We just trust in him. There's some great stuff in there, cities as well. I'll quickly talk about this because I love this. There's two songs about cities. There's a song about a ruined city and a song about the city of God. And often in the Bible, cities are representative of rebelling against God. 
Because if you think about where cities start, actually not quite start, Cain built the first city, but where cities become prominent in the Bible story is Babel, chapter 11. God has said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And humanity says, no, we're going to build a big tower and a big city. We're all going to live together. We don't want to scatter. We don't want to fill the earth. And God says, you're going to. And he causes them to have different languages. He sends them out. But actually, one of those early human cities was basically humanity saying, God's told us to do this. We don't want to. We're going to do this. And so often the city becomes a, a symbol of human pride. Again, that being lofty, exalting ourselves. Human um, attempts, I guess, to thwart God's plans. And so within these chapters, there's this song of this ruined city, this idea that the world, it's representative of the world uh, set against God, has been destroyed. But then there's also this wonderful sense of God redeeming that. Because then there's in 25, 6 to 12, is that the right one? No, sorry, 26, 1 to 6, the song of the strong city. God actually redeems the idea of the city. He himself has a city where salvation are the walls. And that's the passage where if you read it, almost all of those six verses are saying, trust in God, trust in God, trust in God. The way you get into this new city is by trusting in God. So much I would love to say there, but have a read of that in your own time. Because it'd be good to look at the future and the Messiah in chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah. Much of Isaiah, like much of the prophets as a whole, we said last week, is talking about his time. And the risk for us as modern day Christians is we try to read it all as about our time or after our time. But there are parts of it where Isaiah is looking down the timeline. And often actually it's not immediately obvious when he's talking about the near future to him or where he's talking about the distant future of Jesus or the age to come. And that's what we sometimes call foreshortening. It's a bit like if you had, um, well, I can probably do it, I think. If you look now, my hands, I know they don't, but would look like they're in the same place. They look like there's no distance between them. When I turn that way, you suddenly realise there's great distance between them. Often the prophets talk about things that are about to happen in their day and things that will happen at the coming of Jesus, at the second coming of Jesus, as if they're all at the same time. But actually, when we turn the perspective, we realise actually they've foreshortened it. They've made it look like it's together when the reality is they are apart. And in each of the three main sections of Isaiah, there's talk of a key figure, a key figure who will be kind of the agent of God's salvation, what he's going to do. He's presented differently, actually, in all of these three sections, but performs largely the same role. And that's the figure we traditionally call the Messiah, the anointed one or the Christ is what it is in uh, the Greek in the New Testament. And it's not actually applied uh, as a term to Isaiah in uh, two, two or three. The word Messiah is not used of this saving figure in Isaiah. The word Messiah actually is rarely used in the Old Testament. It's what we use to summarise a load of Old Testament teaching. But he is in there. And so I'm going to again give you a few moments in your groups to look at one of these four passages. And I want you to ask three things about the figure being described. The first thing is to ask what is said about this figure? How is he described? What characterises him? Then to ask, what does he actually do? What does this Messiah figure do? And then to ask, what are the effects, the thing that come, the things, so that come as the results of this individual's work? And what happens around him? Sometimes it's not what he does, but it's what happens at the moment that he arrives on the scene. So um, I'll let you choose which one you do. Take about seven minutes on that, and then we'll feed back and find what we found uh, about the Messiah in Isaiah 1 to 39. Okay, shall we share what we found? Did anyone look at, uh, what's the first one, Isaiah 4? 
Ah, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, what did you guys find? What, um, how is the figure in Isaiah 4 described? Are you in Isaiah 9? Sorry. No, it's all right. We'll come to you next. You guys were Isaiah 4, though, were you? How is the Messianic figure described in Isaiah 4? A branch. Is that? Yeah. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. This is an interesting passage in a sense. He doesn't talk much about doesn't describe the figure actually much, doesn't he? He kind of says that and then starts stuff about what happens when he arrives. Um, there's actually a bit of a debate about this. So in other books, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, the branch is definitely a Messiah figure. A lot of scholars think that this branch here isn't a Messiah figure. Um, I think it probably is for a variety of reasons. When you read um, the Targum, which is a very early translation of the Old Testament, so the time of Ezra, people were forgetting how to read Hebrew. And so they made Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, which is basically what Ezra does when he stands up and reads the word of God to people. So one of these very early translations of Isaiah 4, definitely the Jews before Jesus were reading this as a reference to the Messiah. Now that's a very good reason to think it was, okay? They understood this stuff much better than we do. Other reasons too. What happens then when this branch arrives? What uh, What are the kind of effects that come with him? Cleanses the remnant of people living in Jerusalem. Wonderful, yeah. Um, and he, yeah, he creates a cloud of smoke and a, a, a fire by night. Good. And what, what's that talking about? Why is that of any good to anyone? <coughs> living with a cloud of smoke and a fire by night, what's that? Excellent, yeah. Led, yeah, how God led people, how God showed he with his people. So he's saying that even though you're utterly unholy, we're going to be cleansed, as Tom just said. He talks about the remnant, the leftover people being called holy. And then he says that over this whole Mount of Zion where they live, there'll be a cloud by day, smoke and a shining flame of fire by night. For over all the glory, there'll be, be a canopy. He's using the imagery of Exodus, exactly as we've said, to symbolise the fact that God will cleanse his people. There'll be a holy people and God will live right there with him. And what's particularly significant is he says uh, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, which basically is Jerusalem. So this isn't just in the temple. He's saying God won't just be living in that building you built anymore. He's going to be over the whole site of that mounting of the Lord. God will dwell with his people in uh, a new place, no longer confined to a temple, but living with this holy remnant. And it happens when this branch arrives. Brilliant. Isaiah 9. You guys did? Anyone else look at Isaiah 9? Group at the back, fantastic. Uh, how is the figure in Isaiah 9 described? What characterises them? Great Sorry? Great light. Great light, wonderful. Yeah, that's one of the key things, light into the darkness. What else is said about him? A mighty king. A mighty king, yeah. Wonderful counsellors. This is, you know, we're all feeling Christmas, aren't we? All the things we know. Prince of Peace. Let's get the last two. What are the last two? Uh, yep. Mighty God. Wonderful. There's this figure who's going to come out. How's the figure described? Are they, try not to ask leading questions. Are they young? Are they old? Are they? <laughs> the child, yeah. This is interesting that there's this combination of 
a child being born, which is a very uh, kind of very human thing, basically, birth is a human thing, but also this fact that this one is called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. This person's going to be born and they're called the Mighty God. That's kind of a, a rather uh, a huge kind of vision. And what kind of things does this, um, this messianic figure do? Brilliant, yeah, yeah. Victory, Victory yep. Peace. Peace, wonderful. Joy as well, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. He's going to fix all things, he's going to bring joy, he's going to, all this kind of fighting that happens between these nations is going to end. He's going to bring peace, he's going to bring wholeness. And obviously, we'll talk about this in the last session, but obviously you hear there the echoes of Matthew's uh, account of the birth of Jesus, how he applies this to him. Uh, then Isaiah 11. Can I just say Yeah, that? sorry, please do. That uh, does end saying, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And I think that's very, very important. That yes. It does yeah. reinstate that. It's, Absolutely. Again, it's, it's the Lord that's, yeah. that's doing it. Important, comforting, reassuring. Yeah, God is going to do this. No matter how rubbish the people might be, God is somehow going to establish this kingdom is going to raise up this child god king figure wonderful absolutely seems to be that bringing together doesn't there of humanity and divinity seems to be lurking behind there definitely isaiah 11 any of you look at that you guys did anyone else you guys front wonderful what did you find um how is the figure in isaiah 11 described Mm-hmm. This uh, Messiah figure, obviously about Jesus. Brilliant, yeah. So one of the key things is he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember, yeah, Messiah means anointed one. He's anointed yeah, by the Holy Spirit. A spirit of wisdom, a spirit of counsel, power, yeah. a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And uh, he'll be righteous and he'll judge the needy with justice. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, give decisions for the poor of the earth. But it also says he'll strike absolutely there's some kind of strong warnings in there as well what kind of um how do I put this? what kind of person is who what kind of person judges and decides disputes and um i think it talks about reigning somewhere what kind of figure is this yes fantastic this is a king this is a promise of a king um, and what the very first verse is, he talks about um, shoots and stumps and Jesse. Anyone get any significance from Jesse and this stuff? Perfect, yeah, yeah. So Jesse is the father of David. And David, as I said earlier, is this king to whom God makes these incredible promises of this eternal kingdom. Promises which basically are a fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. So God's saying all this stuff he's been promising to do to restore everything that's been broken, everything that's been lost, is going to happen through a king descended from David. And of course, we've just seen that King Ahaz is the guy who sold out to the Assyrians, is now under their control, under their hand. They're paying them lots of money. The Davidic monarchy has basically ended. That thing that God had promised is not there. That thing through which God is going to redeem the world, is going to solve everything, has been destroyed by the unfaithfulness of Ahaz. But here we have God saying he's going to bring someone from that stump, that leftover from that forest fire, who will be a new king, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And also he talks something about the transformation that will come. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, 
the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is worth talking about just quickly. Often in um, prophetic literature, language is used which is hyperbolic, which means it's um, exaggerated to make a point. So it's, it might, as I'm not saying it's going to happen. It might be that in the new creation, the wolf and the lamb dwell together, but it might just be that this is a, a, a kind of pictorial way of saying there will be wonderful peace and wonderful serenity and prosperity and stuff, which is why we shouldn't read things like this uh, or the bit that people read at the end of Mark and think that in our churches we should be handling snakes. You know, these churches that do this because they think that it says here and in Mark that if you handle snakes with a bit and you'll be fine. It doesn't necessarily mean exactly that. It's talking about illustratively peace and safety and such like. Uh, and the last one, Isaiah 32. Did anyone look at that? Wonderful. Thank you, Mike and Helen. What did you find in Isaiah 32? Mm. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. Brilliant. So again, we've got the idea of a, a, a new king who totally changes the way things work, basically. There is a lot of business about women. That is very true, yes. Yeah. Mm. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's one of the key things. I mean, so all throughout the Old Testament, the the thing we're waiting for is when the Spirit is poured out is the sign that God is restoring, yes, is renewing all things. As we've already seen in Isaiah 11, that this king, one of the distinctives about him is that he is drenched in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and all these sort of different things. And here again, we have a king. And with the coming of the king comes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And it's really interesting. He says things like, uh, until the Spirit is poured upon us from a high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, the fruitful field is deemed a forest, um, there's lots in there, it goes on about fruitfulness, which of course is one of the things that there hasn't been. This vineyard, Isaiah 5, has failed to produce the fruit. When the Holy Spirit comes, the fruit gets produced. All these things are linking together. It's kind of there, if you dig into it, that he's saying that the Holy Spirit will come, will transform it so that God's people can be that vine that produced the fruit that God wants, living under this new king. Brilliant. Let me quickly zip through this last section <coughs> before we close. With a chapter 28, we reach, um, in a sense, uh, a new, we reach a new historical background. We've got a new king, no longer King Ahaz, now King Hezekiah. He's now not considering Assyria as a um, partner to help. He's now considering Egypt. I'm going to jump down and talk about 36 to 37, because this is a great story. This is where the teaching of trusting Yahweh, don't, teach, don't trust in Egypt, becomes applied to a real-life situation. Because... Um, 
There's this threat of a Syrian invasion. Sennacherib, the Syrian king, has come. He's invaded pretty much all the towns around Jerusalem. And basically, the people of Assyria, the army of Assyria, are outside the gates of Jerusalem. And they send messengers in, saying to Hezekiah, don't bother trusting in Egypt. Don't bother, actually, they say, trusting your God. You've got no chance. You might as well just give in to us now. You might as well just let us come and take over. And then also this um, messenger from Sennacherib talks to the people. Again, says, don't trust what your king says. Don't follow him. And actually has the audacity to say, don't bother trusting your God. He says, look around. None of the other gods of the nations have been able to protect them against us. And then um, Hezekiah responds. He goes to the temple. Presumably he goes to pray. And he also sends a messenger to Isaiah. So here's an example where actually someone's asking the advice of the um, Uh, the prophet asking him to bring a message from God and Isaiah responds and says to Hezekiah don't fear but continue trusting in God which actually when you think about it is an incredible thing and a difficult thing your city is surrounded by armies they're saying all these things they defeated all these nations and the prophet's saying don't do anything just trust in God amazing amazing test of faith Um, and then Senegrib sends another message this time by a letter And he tells him again, don't bother trusting in God. And this time we get Hezekiah's cry. He cries out to God. He says, save us from Sennacherib's hands that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And God responds to Hezekiah, who has finally learned this thing of, I've got to trust only in God to deliver us. God responds. He speaks a word of judgment against uh, um, Assyria. He promises a sign to Hezekiah. He promises that he will preserve a remnant of his people of Judah and that Sennacherib will not destroy the city. During that night, as these armies are around the city, the angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And soon afterwards, Sennacherib's sons actually murder him. Hezekiah trusted in God and God acts. God fulfills his word. What's really interesting, historically, the Assyrian annals, that's the Assyrian historical records, are clear that the Assyrians never succeeded in defeating Jerusalem and never explain why. Funnily enough, they don't admit that 185,000 of them died in one night, but there is is extra-biblical evidence that the Assyrians never conquered Jerusalem and they kind of didn't know or weren't happy to say why. There's actually good historical reasons to believe that this really happens. All the text tells us is the angel of the Lord went out and killed them. We don't. We don't know. Sorry? Maybe. Well, maybe actually, actually, yeah, they are agents there, burning ones, agents of judgment. In a sense, that could be the angel of the Lord that did it. Whereas his father Ahaz failed to trust in God when the Assyrians and the the Syrians and the Israelites were threatening to evade them, Hezekiah trusts in God. And God delivers them. He's learned that lesson that all the way through these chapters, Isaiah has been trying to teach us that it's only by trusting in Yahweh that we can be delivered, that we can receive salvation. Just in the last three minutes, let me talk about the transition which introduces the next chapters we'll look at last time. Hezekiah becomes sick and actually it's slightly complex. This actually happens before that thing we just talked about. So when the Assyrians come and invade the cities around Judah, that is because of what happens here. But Isaiah wants to use this to get us to think about the Babylonians who come next. So he's deliberately changed the order. He's not lying, he's just changing the order to get us to think about the Babylonians in the right place. So Hezekiah becomes sick and Isaiah tells him he's going to die. But Hezekiah cries out to God and God actually grants him another 15 years to live. And while he's recovering, 
The king of Babylon, a guy called Merodach Baladan, sends an envoy to come and see him. And they claim that they're coming to see him in his recovery. They're being lovely, they're kind of, you know, visiting him on his, um, on his sickbed as he's recovering. But actually, they had more sinister motives. Merodach Baladan was a, a very persistent guy. He had been king of the Babylonians, and then the Assyrians got rid of him. And then he rose up again, and he became king of the Babylonians. After this, he gets knocked down again by the Assyrians. He doesn't become king again, but he continues to revolt against them. He was a very persistent, very unpleasant, in many ways, man. And Isaiah doesn't really tell us exactly what happened, but he tells us that when this delegation comes, Hezekiah shows them round all the palace treasuries. He shows them all that they've got, all the finery, all the gold, all the silver. And it seems that what he was basically doing is he was agreeing to an alliance. The Babylonians were coming and saying, let's join forces to get rid of the Assyrians once and for all. And Hezekiah says, I could do that. Come and see all this stuff I've got, all these funds we've got, all these weapons we've got. He's completely forgotten that whole lesson that Isaiah is trying to teach him. He's trusting in another nation. He's not trusting in God. And as a result, God, de- uh, God declares through Isaiah that all these treasures that he's shown the um, Assyrian ruler, even some of his own descendants, his own sons, are going to be taken away by the Babylonians all the way across there to Babylonia. And they're going to serve in the king of, in the palace of the king of Babylon. He says that Babylon will defeat Judah and will cart them off into exile. That's exactly what happens. It's 120-ish years later by 586 BC. This is about 701 BC. The Babylonians will come, will invade, will utterly destroy Jerusalem, will cart a lot of the people off to Babylon, just as Isaiah has said here. And of course, the question that raises for us is, how can God allow that to happen when we just had 38 chapters of Isaiah telling us that God is able to defeat the nations and to deliver his people. All these promises that all these nations are going to come, are going to be with Israel and Judah, are going to worship Yahweh alongside them. This promise of this new king anointed by the Spirit who reign in righteousness over this international kingdom of peace. Perhaps God isn't able to keep his promises. There are nice ideas, but he's just not able. Perhaps he's just not willing to. He's just not actually faithful. If the book of Isaiah ended there, that might be what we think. That might be what the people uh, Isaiah was speaking to, writing to, would think. But Isaiah can't stand that idea. He knows he has to explain what happens. He can't leave the story there. If God's going to allow the Babylonian exile to happen, Isaiah has to show how all that he has said fits with that. How God can still be faithful to his promises. How God is still able, actually, to triumph over the nations. He needs to show that God's able, that God's faithful. That's why next session, Isaiah 40 to 55, we're going to see Isaiah talking to people at the end of the Babylonian exile. So people 170 years later, which might seem really weird, and that's why scholars say it's a different author. But actually, when you realise what Isaiah just said, he needs to say this, or the integrity of God's word and his faithfulness is under question. Isaiah has seen the Holy One of Israel the one who rightly sits high and lifted up upon his throne. And he must defend his honour. And that's what he'll do in Isaiah 40 to 55 when we meet next time, which remember is not next week, it's the week after, and he's not here, he's at the Pelham in Bexhill. I look forward to seeing you there.